as they go, you can grab your Bible. If you don't have one with you, you can grab a pew Bible and turn to the book of Micah. Micah, if, uh, if you've been with us for the last few months, then you should be able to find Micah pretty easily because he's the next door neighbor of Jonah, and we've been in Jonah for a while. Micah, one of the minor prophets. We're in Micah 5. Uh, that's on page 1,450 in this Bible, but this is maybe not the same as the Pew Bibles because this is a large print Bible, so the paging. Page numbers are probably different because I forgot my glasses today. All right, I'm going to be reading Micah 5, and I'll be starting in verse 2 and reading through the, uh, the beginning. This is the first part of verse 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. And I'll stop there. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask for his help to understand, to believe, and to apply it. Holy Father, thank you for these prophetic words that were spoken so long ago, that were recorded and preserved and passed on, and that now are before us this morning. I do pray that as we think about these verses, that we will understand what they mean, that we will believe the truth contained therein, and that we will apply these things to our own lives in our own time. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, let's get a little bit of context. It is around the year 700 B.C., when uh, the prophet Micah did his ministry around 700 BC. That's a little bit earlier than last year when we, or last week when we were in the book of Haggai. Uh, 700 BC is roughly, if you want to place it in your biblical timeline, it's the same time that the prophet Isaiah was uh, engaged in his ministry. Isaiah, a prophetical book that is full of messianic prophecies anticipating the arrival of the true king. Uh, historically, the Assyrians are the superpower in the world at the time, and they have been attacking and ravaging the country. Jerusalem still stands, it's still around, but it's hanging by a thread. It's not looking good. And there is a sense that, amongst the people of Israel, that God has abandoned them. And, and, and there's a recognition that if, if, in fact, God has left us on our own, it's our fault. It's because of our sins. This is divine discipline that we have brought on ourselves. Into this situation, it's a bleak situation. Into this situation, Micah speaks his words of prophecy. Now, at the start of Micah, which we're not going to read today, but at the start of the book of Micah, he indicates that uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. There is more destruction to come. 
And he says that this is, in fact, an expression of God's holy discipline. The problem is that Israel has had a series of corrupt leaders who have led God's people astray, and God's people have willingly and knowingly followed these bad leaders. It's their fault as well. They have owned this rebellion by willingly following bad leaders who have led them astray. But then you get to Micah 5, and you get a wonderful prophecy about future hope. And this is the passage that often gets cited around Christmas time. This is probably the one passage from Micah that you, that you do. Well, there's probably another one in Micah 6 that you know. There's two famous ones in Micah. But this is the Christmas one. And uh, it, the reason it's, a, it's a, associated with Christmas is because it contains a clear prophecy about the location of Jesus' birth. And it also gives a description of, of what the coming Messiah will do. So it's a Christmas passage, and in this passage, what I saw as I looked at it this week, I see three paradoxes, three Christmas mysteries, three paradoxes uh, within this passage, and that's what I want to talk about. So the definition of a paradox is it's something that is made up of two opposite things that seem impossible, but are actually both true at the same time. Right? They feel like, they seem like two competing things that don't go together, that in fact it feels like they contradict each other, and yet somehow they do go together. That's a paradox. So here are the three Christmas paradoxes that I see in this passage. First, we're told that the coming Messiah will be from of old, from ancient days, and yet he's coming in the future. Right? So that's the first paradox. How can the coming one be both ancient and new at the same time? That's a paradox. Second, this individual that will be born will be born in a very small, very local town, and yet his ministry will be universal. So that's the second paradox. How can his ministry be both local and universal at the same time? And the third one is we're told that this individual is going to be a great ruler and is also going to be a shepherd. Those don't normally go together. So that's the third paradox. How can this coming one be both a king and a shepherd at the same time? Okay, those are the three points of the sermon. We'll take each in turn. So first of all, how is it that the coming one is going to be both ancient and new? Right? It says, from you shall come forth, future tense, from you shall come forth, hasn't yet, but will come forth for me. One is to who, who will be a ruler in Israel, and whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Okay, that's, that's definitely a paradox, but we needn't spend too much time on it this morning because that is one of the central tenets of the Christian faith. That is something that most of us have been familiar with since childhood. Even if we don't fully understand it, there's definitely an element of mystery here, but it's, not, it's probably not a new concept to most of us. The question is, how can, some, how can a person uh, be born and also be eternal? And the only way that someone could fit both of those descriptions if they, is if they were both human and divine. And that is exactly what we Christians believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is fully God, fully God, and therefore he did not have a beginning. There was no time when he did not exist 
Uh, that's John's point, remember? John, with his big opening to his gospel, when he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right? Forever. No beginning. He was, he was, he'd been there since the beginning. There's never a time when he was not there. Jesus made the same point, remember, when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. We could keep going with examples, but you get the idea. The Bible clearly and unmistakably teaches that Jesus is fully divine, and therefore he is eternal. He has always existed. And yet, he will also be born. That's because he's also fully human. And part of what it means to be human is that you come into being at a certain point in time. Humans are not eternal. We have a beginning, all of us have a beginning. So for this coming ruler to be both eternal and to come into being and be born, that's a paradox. It's a paradox that is explained by the doctrine of the incarnation, which teaches that Jesus in his divine nature is eternal and uncreated, but in his humility, in his desire to secure our salvation, he took on flesh, he incarnated, and he was born to a woman. That's one of the great themes of the classic Christmas carols, right? So many Christmas carols are about the incarnation, right? We're singing about the incarnation when we sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Okay. So he's eternal, and he's also new. That's a paradox, but it's also a, a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. Second, his ministry is both local and universal at the same time. Let me explain just how local. When I say local, this, this ministry began very, very local. Now, of course, we all know about Bethlehem today. We all have heard about the place Bethlehem. But that's the reason we know about Bethlehem is because of this passage and because of how it was fulfilled through the birth of Jesus Christ. That's why when King Herod sought to find the location of the Savior's birth, he asked his royal scholars, remember the scene in Matthew? He asked his guys, his, his smart guys, his, the guys who should know these kind of things, uh, where is he going to be born? They immediately, without hesitation, say, Bethlehem. That's the spot. Why did they know that so quickly? Well, because they knew about this prophecy in Micah that had been, that had been uh, spoken 700 years prior, and everyone had been waiting for its fulfillment. They knew, okay, if the Savior's coming, he's coming to Bethlehem. But at the time when Micah first gave the prophecy, people would have heard that and they'd have been like, what? Seriously? Why Bethlehem? I mean, sure, David was from there. Okay, okay. But he left. <laughs> he didn't come back. And nothing much came of Bethlehem as a town after that. But it has become a very famous passage of Scripture. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Bethlehem was so obscure, was so insignificant at the time, that Micah had to include not only the name of the town, but also the district. That's what Ephrathah is. It's the district. 
right? So that people would know actually what he was talking about, right? This is not a city like Paris, right? Where if I say Paris, you know I'm talking about Paris, France. I don't need to say that, right? No one thinks I'm talking about Paris, Texas, right? You know Paris means Paris, France because Paris, France is a world-class city. Bethlehem was so tiny, was so insignificant that he had to give the district. Bethlehem, you know, the one in Ephrathah, that one. It was too little to be among the clans of Judah. That's saying a lot. If you've read Joshua 15, in Joshua 15, you get a list of all the towns and cities that were allotted to the clan of Judah. It's, you would be forgiven if you kind of breeze past this list. It's 115 cities listed in Joshua 15. These are the cities allotted to the clan of Judah. Guess what? Bethlehem isn't even considered worth mentioning in that list. It doesn't even rate on that list of 115 cities given to the clan of Judah. That's about as local as it gets, right? If you weren't from Bethlehem, then chances are you never thought about Bethlehem, and you probably wouldn't have been able to find it on a map. And if you rode through Bethlehem on your camel, you'd probably miss it if you weren't paying attention. And yet, on one particular night in history, Bethlehem, that Bethlehem, Nowheresville, became the center of the universe, the center of the universe. The word Bethlehem, you probably know this, the word Bethlehem means house of bread, Bethlehem, house of bread. And Ephrathah means fruitful or abundant or bountiful. Bethlehem is a bountiful, abundant house of bread. Out of Bethlehem will come one with the message of blessing, not just for the town of Bethlehem, and not even just for ethnic Israel, but an abundant message of global blessing. Our passage says that through the ministry of this one who will be born, the rest of his brothers or, or, or fellow countrymen shall return to the people of Israel, and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. See, it was believed at the time that the ministry of the Messiah, when he came, it would be a local ministry. He would be an Israelite. He would minister to the people of Israel, from God for Israel. And that is true. He was an Israelite, and he did minister to the people of Israel. So in that sense, his ministry really was local, local to the people of Israel. But it was also at the same time global, bigger than that. And by the way, when you look at the life of Jesus, you, he seems to prefer local obscurity over global attention. Have you noticed that? He chose to be born in a tiny little nothing town like Bethlehem instead of in Rome or in Jerusalem. He chose to be born to a young, obscure girl named Mary instead of being born to a princess or a queen. He chose to be born in a stable and laid in a manger instead of being born in a palace and laid in a golden cradle. In his early life, he chose to labor anonymously in the trades instead of going into politics or professional ministry or something like that. When he finally did enter into public ministry, he chose an obscure band of mostly uneducated men as his closest companions. He chose to hang out with known sinners, with poor people, with outcasts, with those with diseases, instead of with the elite and the wealthy. He consistently focused his attention locally on small 
and seemingly insignificant people instead of going big and going global. And yet, he did eventually go big. He did eventually go global. That is why we are here talking about him now. Despite the fact that you and I live 10,000 kilometers away from Bethlehem, despite the fact that we live 2,000 years away from his birth, nonetheless, here we are talking about him, and not just talking about him, we worship him. We worship him. His name is great to the ends of the earth, just like Micah said it would be. His name is great. He's born in Nowheresville, and now his name is great to the ends of the earth. And his, his invitation to experience peace with God through his atoning blood is made broadly. Not just to Israel, although it is available to Israel, but that offer is made to all people from all tribes, of all nations, and all tongues. That is a ministry that is both local and global at the same time. And here's the third and last paradox. How can it be that this coming one is going to be both a king and a shepherd at the same time? Those two don't normally go together, especially in Micah's time. And the idea of royalty was so far removed from the common people and from regular life, it was practically unthinkable that a king would even know a shepherd, let alone be a shepherd. And maybe you hear that and you think, well, wait a minute, David, right? David, David was a shepherd and a king. Well, actually, he hung up his shepherd's crook once he became a king. And yet Micah says that this one who is coming and will be ruler, king of Israel, will also, at the same time, stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And again, because of where we stand in the timeline of salvation, we're able to look back. We know exactly how this coming one is going to be both a king and a shepherd. We're not stumped by this one. We get it. He's the king of kings, right? He's a king. He's the king, right? He's... He, he, all the kings on earth that possess earthly power and authority are under the authority of this king, right? He's the, he's the king of all people. He's even the king of kings, which according to the book of Revelation is exactly what will be written on his robe and on his thigh when he returns. King of kings. All people, including kings, are under his authority. But he's not only a king, he's also a shepherd, Right? These are two contrasting visions of what he will do and who he is and what he's all about. He's a king and a shepherd at the same time, which is made crystal clear in John in chapter 10. And a passage that I believe, when, he, when Jesus said the words he said in John 10, he's actually referring back to Micah 5. And he's expecting that his hearers will know their Bibles well enough that when they hear him say what he says in John 10, they'll make the connection and say, oh, Micah 5. He's the embodiment of the promise that we had in Micah 5. Micah says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure, and he shall be their peace. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I laid down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, 
and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's a fulfillment of the prophecy that the coming one will be a shepherd. It's also a reference to the global nature of his ministry. It's a peek ahead, right? The other sheep refers to other sheep, not of this fold. Do you know who those sheep are? Me and you. The Gentiles that are going to be folded into the flock, into the family of God, when we have our hearts regenerated by the power of the Spirit and our eyes open to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Shepherd King. All right, well, those are the Christmas paradoxes in Micah 5. The coming Savior will be both ancient and new. His ministry will be both local and global. And he will be both a king and a shepherd. Now, the obvious follow-up question that Micah's listeners would have been inclined to ask, if you just imagine Micah speaking these words of the Lord, speaking prophetically to the people of God, what they would have wanted to know in that moment is, okay, when? When, Micah? When will this ancient, new, local, global, shepherd king, when will he arrive? Because, Micah, as you well know, we've got the Assyrians breathing down our necks today. So right now would be a pretty good time for this coming one to come. But of course, that wasn't God's timing. It was 700 years later, when the fullness of time had come, that God made good on this promise and sent forth his son. This past week, I've been, I've been reading a really fun book. It's a dictionary. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's funner than it sounds. It's... Uh, This particular dictionary is called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And uh, it gives, the the idea of the book is that it gives a word. There's there's all sorts of different circumstances that human beings face in life that cause a vague and undefined sense of sorrow. And this book puts a word to those sorrows. So I'll give you an example. if, if If you're someone who who feels frustration and sadness at at being stuck in one body and only being able to be in one place at a time, right? If that that makes you a little bit sad sometimes, that thought, you suffer from onism. I bet you didn't even know what that was called. That's called onism, right? If it makes you sad that, well, I'm just one person in one place at one time. I can't be everywhere at once. If that makes you sad, that's onism. Uh, There's another word, the feeling of sadness you get when you finish a really good book, And you close the cover and you lock away all those lives of all those characters that you've gotten to know so well. There's a word for that. It's called loose left. Loose left is the feeling of sadness after you finish a good book and you're going to miss the characters. Okay, so this is a a word that I learned in this dictionary this week. It's a compound word. It's Latin. It's called nodus tollens. Nodus tollens. And it is defined as this. Nodus Tollens is the sad feeling that the plot of your life doesn't make sense to you anymore. The plot of your life just, you thought you had it, you thought you knew where it was going, and all of a sudden the plot of your life just doesn't make sense anymore. I bet the people of ancient Israel in Micah's time knew all about Nodus Tollens. They probably didn't know to call it that. But they had lost the plot of their life. It, 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 at one time it made sense, 
right? It seemed to be progressing according to plan. And all of a sudden, they lost the thread, and it didn't make sense anymore, right? The, the plot was supposed to be, well, we're the people of God. We were chosen by God to be his special chosen people. We were supposed to be the recipients of his special favor. We were supposed to live in the promised land and to worship him in his temple. We were supposed to be the people who obeyed his holy law and experienced the peace and joy and blessing that comes with that. Instead, they experienced one bad leader after another. They worship one false god after another. They're under siege from one foreign power after another. And eventually, Jerusalem itself falls. Eventually, the temple itself is destroyed. And although they come back and eventually rebuild the temple, it's not that great. We talked about that last week. And the people are scattered. When they finally return, they're oppressed. They must have looked around and said, what is going on here? Aren't we supposed to be God's chosen people? His treasured possession? What happened to the promises? Has God forsaken us? Will he ever fulfill these promises? Did he take them back? That's not his tolerance. You look around one day, and you have the sad feeling that the, the plot of your life no longer makes sense to you anymore. Well, here's what eventually happened one night in the little town of Bethlehem. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all our years are met in thee tonight. All those years of hoping that the one that Micah had promised would finally come, all those years of fearing that it felt like God wasn't paying attention and that God maybe took back his promise and wouldn't fulfill it, those hopes and fears were met in Bethlehem in the person of Jesus Christ when he was born into the world. And suddenly the plot makes sense again. God does love us. God has not forsaken us. God does keep his promises. That's the message of Christmas. God loves us and he's with us and he's for us. That's a good thing to be reminded of especially when we lose the plot line of our own lives. Maybe you're facing circumstances right now and you're wondering, is God still with me? Is he, is he even paying attention? Does he even know what's happening? Does he even care? Why is he allowing these things to happen to me? Or maybe you're not going through hard times like that. Maybe you're not having questions like that. But maybe you just look around the world and you wonder, how long, O oh Lord? How long are you going to put up with this? How long are you going to allow injustice and suffering and pain to continue? Will it get the final word? Advent is a time when we're reminded that it won't. That God is with us. God is paying attention. He's paying attention to pain and suffering and injustice. And he cares about it. And he won't allow it to go on forever. He's done something about it. He made good on his promise to send a ruler to be born in Bethlehem. And that ruler secured our peace with God through his sacrifice on the cross. And after rising again, that ruler promised that he would one day come again. We don't know when that day will come. 
but we do know that the hopes and fears of all our years will be met in him that day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning that you are a God who makes and keeps promises. Your timing is not our timing. Your ways are not always our ways. And we don't always understand why you do what you do and why you allow what you allow. But we do believe that you are good and that you are faithful. We believe that you love us and that your love never wavers. And we believe that when you say something, it will be done. You promised that you would send a ruler, someone who was both new and to be born, and yet from of old, ancient of days. And you, in fact, made good on that promise. That ruler had a ministry that was both local to the immediate people surrounding him, to the people who knew him when he was alive, when he walked the earth, and it was also global. It spread to the ends of the earth, and his ministry is offered to all nations, including us. And that ruler is both king of kings and also a shepherd who cares for us, who leads us, and who loves us. And the fact that you have fulfilled all of those promises gives us assurance that you will fulfill the promise to return. We don't know when, but we do know that it will happen and that all of our hopes and fears will be met in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.